Okay, let's move on to the main business of the evening, and that is uh, a talk by Aaron Pegram from the Australian War Memorial. Um, I'm one of Aaron's uh, co-supervisors in his PhD thesis, which he's conducting under his main supervisor, Bill Gamage, at ANU. Um, he's been working away on it for quite a while, but I saw the last couple of chapters that I hope he's going to show me the other week, and they are superb. Uh, Aaron's found things out about POWs, and in the case of the chapters I just read, the circumstances of their capture, uh, which I think will change the way we understand uh, combat on the Western Front. It's, it's very perceptive history. Um, so we're very fortunate tonight to hear from one of the coming young men at the Australian War, War Memorial. They've got coming young women too, but he's one of the coming young men. Um, and, uh, and I think we're in for a treat. It's a poignant treat, of course, because almost exactly a century ago, uh, the Australians attacked at Bulacor on the 11th of April, and, and I'll leave to Aaron to talk more about that because he is the expert. But I think you'll, you're about to uh, encounter a, a, a wonderful young historical talent telling a very poignant story, and more to the point, a story that we thought we knew, but we don't really know because Aaron will show us how new knowledge has been created by his research. So unless there's anything else, I don't think there's anything else. Can I ask you to welcome to the, to the podium Aaron Pegram. Aaron. Thank you very much, Peter, and, and certainly that gushing sort of introduction sort of belied all the, the amount of red pen that was on those two chapters. <clears throat> um, what I would like to do before I actually get into my, my presentation, um, we are a, a part, a functionary of the Western Front Association in the United Kingdom, which is uh, a broad group that discusses uh, all aspects of the fighting during the First World War, not necessarily to the Western Front. And uh, we are one of two chapters uh, here in Australia, and, uh, and I think we've, we've just learnt through Peter that this is perhaps one of our uh, more uh, densely populated sort of attendances. So if you could uh, smile for the camera very, uh, very briefly. Um, there we go, I've done my secretarial duties for the evening. Uh, before I begin, I really wanted to, uh, well, Peter, Peter explained that today marks the almost uh, 100th, well, the anniversary of uh, Australia's costly and unsuccessful attack at Bulukor in France uh, on the 11th of April 1917. And uh, I thought uh, what I would do, uh, some of you, you know, may, may be well versed or know much about the Australian campaign on the Western Front, sorry, the Australian involvement on the, on the fighting on the Western Front, um, uh, but the context of Bulukor and specifically. And um, Bulukor really sort of forms part of the operations that follow uh, once uh, after the, the, the end of the Battle of the Somme, uh, throughout the, the resulting winter, uh, where the, the front line still was many kilometres from the, the, the objective set on the, on the first day, uh, both sides, uh, both the British and the Germans, hunkered down for the following winter. The Australians spent that winter in the, in the uh, fleurs Goudicourt sector in, uh, and endured what was the coldest winter in 40 years. And in February 1917, uh, Australian patrols all along the first uh, and second Anzac Corps front returned to discover that the Germans had simply left. They weren't there anymore. Those positions the Germans had, had stubbornly held throughout that, uh, that winter had been abandoned. What the Germans were doing, they were withdrawing to the Hindenburg Line, which was a more a formidable uh, German uh, defensive system, probably about 50 kilometres further to the east. And the idea was that uh, by, by taking up new positions uh, further to the rear, the Germans would, uh, would shorten a, a, a significant bulge the Allies had pushed into German lines, thereby saving up to about uh, 15 infantry regiments holding that salient. And so March and April 1917, the British Army, which includes the Australians, had followed up on the German withdrawal and uh, they regained contact with the Germans in significant numbers on the 11th of April 1917. So what I wanted to do uh, to start off my, my presentation today is, is, is talk about, uh, tell, this, tell you the story of Sergeant William Groves, who, of the 14th Battalion, who was taken prisoner 100 years ago today during that costly and unsuccessful assault on the German Hindenburg Line defences near Bulukor. Groves left a really remarkable account of his experiences in captivity in uh, the Returned Servicemen's Journal, Rivelli, where he described hundreds of German soldiers, heads encased in barrel-like helmets, overrunning his portion of the Hindenburg Line. He was stripped of his rifle and equipment at the point of an automatic pistol. 
and recalled a young German soldier advancing menacingly towards me, swinging a stick bomb by the handle, shouting, Los, 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 by which I understood that I'd better watch my step and go quietly. Of the 3,000 Australian casualties lost that day at Bulacore, 1,170 of them were taken prisoner in what, was the what, was in that, what was the largest capture of Australian troops in a single engagement during the First World War. Now, captivity is a lesser-known aspect of Australia's First World War story because there were so, there were so few of them taken. Of the 213,000 battle casualties uh, suffered by the Australian Imperial Force during the conflict, 4,044 of them fell into enemy hands. Now, the Ottoman Turks took about 200 of them on Gallipoli in the Middle East, and the Germans took 3,848 in the fighting on the Western Front. Now, this relatively small number of Australian prisoners uh, across those theatres reflected the static nature of trench warfare, which actually limited the face-to-face -face contact with the enemy to, uh, to a limited number of raids, patrols and major engagements. The experiences of prisoners were never widely known either during the war or after, uh, but their hardships were overshadowed by the nation's 60,000 war dead who became the focus of private and public mourning in the interwar period. Now, despite those hardships, just 397 of these were men who died in enemy hands. Uh, so prisoners who died in captivity represented 0.6% of the Australian wartime deaths. And so prisoners of war didn't necessarily integrate exceptionally well into public narratives of the First World War or those emerging, emerging commemorative rituals. Captivity was also a story of surrender and defeat, which was largely at odds with the triumphant national memory of the Western Front fighting, which gave prominence to the AIF's victories over its defeats. And, of course, the experiences of prisoners in the First World War were eclipsed by the capture of over 30,000 Australian, Australian troops during the Second World War, the vast majority of whom went on to endure extreme deprivation and hardships in the hands of the Japanese. Now, the, cent the, century the centenary of the First Battle of Bulacore is, is indeed a timely reminder that captivity was indeed part of the Australian First World War experience. Now, most Australian prisoners captured on the Western Front fared considerably well, and we see that in the, uh, in the relatively small uh, mortality rate. They also they benefited from pre-war agreements that respected the humane treatment of prisoners of war and protected them from violence and abuse from their captors. But their vastly different experiences and conditions that shaped the lives of, all, of officers and men there was a sense of continuity that all prisoners of war endured hardships, anguish and deprivation in German captivity, particularly the men who were taken prisoner in the costly and unsuccessful attack of Bulacore. Unlike most other Australians captured on the Western Front, the Bulacore prisoners were deliberately mistreated by their captors who, were, who detained them in France and kept them as forced labourers for up to six months. Now, these men were malnourished, abused and exposed to British shellfire and their mistreatment not only just violated the terms of the pre-war conventions, but marked, uh, represented the very worst of German captivity during the First World War. Uh, let's see if I can... There we go. Uh, I'm just going to give sort of a, a very potted overview to uh, the Battle of Bulukor, because it is, after all, it's centenary. Um, and I mentioned those Hindenburg Line defences and just how formidable they were. Um, so after months of uh, fluid mobile open warfare, um, you know, Australian troops who had taken part in this advance to the Hindenburg Line had thought that perhaps you know, the war was at its end, uh, the Germans had thrown the towel in and you know, the war, the trench warfare which had dominated for the years previously uh, was, was finally back to one of, 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 of open warfare. Uh, and then they run into the Hindenburg Line. Um, these are thick belts of barbed wire, uh, some up to 50 yards thick. Um, you, of course, you have uh, the German trenches over here, um, in mutually supportive machine gun positions, that is, machine gun positions that, that uh, have uh, designated fire zones. Now, there are gaps in the German wire here uh, on which were concentrated those German machine guns. Now, this was just the first line of the Hindenburg Line system. Uh, if any attacking force that had to penetrate the Hindenburg Line, then it had to go on another four, five, six kilometres of these, uh, of these defensive networks. And the Germans, or it's referred to as elastic defence. Um, and so the operations that are carried out in this sector is largely uh, trying, to, uh, trying to achieve a breakthrough the infamous Himmenberg Line. But the First Battle of Bulacor also takes place within the broader context of the Battle of Arras and attempts by British forces to achieve a breakthrough 
while drawing German reserves away from the main uh, French offensive, which is being conducted on the Chem de Dam. Now, British First and Third Armies had made significant gains elsewhere throughout the, uh, throughout the Battle of Arras, and most notably the Canadian capture of Vimy Ridge on the 9th of April. Now, an attack by the British Fifth Army in the Bullecourt area had sought to achieve a breakthrough where the Germans had least expected. Operating under the command of General Sir Herbert Goff, the plan was for the British 62nd Division and the 4th Australian Division to attack either side of Bullecourt village and eject the Germans from the Hindenburg line. Okay, so here we have uh, Bullecourt village. Uh, and the Australians are attacking over here what is actually in front of Riencourt and uh, the Brits are attacking over on this side here. Now, Goff had hoped that his troops would make a deep penetration or a narrow front into what was what, what the military referred to as a re-entrant, um, and in an effort to, to retain uh, surprise, uh, tanks would be used instead of the usual artillery bombardment to support the attacking infantry. Now, tanks were still a new and innovative, innovative weapon since their first, first use on the Western Front in September 1916. They were to advance ahead of the infantry, crush the thick belts of the barbed wire in front of the Hindenburg line, and neutralise nearby German strongpoints. But the tanks that were used at Bullecourt were poorly armed, armoured, and prone to mechanical problems. They failed to reach the rendezvous on time and delayed the attack set for the 10th of April by 24 hours. Now, news of this delay failed to reach the British 67th, 62nd Division, whose troops carried out a futile attack completely unsupported at the cost of 200 casualties. Now, this so-called dummy stunt alerted, to the Germans that British, uh, alerted the Germans to British plans in the Bullecourt sector, although Goff ignored Australian protests from Australian commanders and went ahead with the second attack the following morning. Oh, no. oh sorry. So the infantry... Um, the Australian troops of the 4th and 12th Brigades attacked the Hindenburg Line as planned on, at dawn uh, on the 11th of April 1917. But of those 12 tanks that were set to support them, just two had made it to the German wire before they were put out of action by German fire. The rest were knocked out of action, suffered mechanical failure or encountered obstacles from which they could not recover. The infantry were left completely unsupported but had managed to fight their way into the Hindenburg Line defences where they engaged the Germans in bitter close quarters fighting. Now, the Australian infantry repelled counter-attacks throughout the rest of that morning, facing mounting casualties and ever-diminishing supplies of ammunition. Their requests for artillery assistance went unanswered and, could, and they could no longer hold their own gains. And the 4th fourth, fourth Division was eventually forced to withdraw from the Hindenburg Line, but did so, risking crossing over a kilometre of open ground that constituted no man's land in full view of German machine gunners and artillery observers. Now, the main effort of this attack had obviously been the Hindenburg Line here, but uh, machine gunners across here in Balcony Trench were firing, uh, firing enfilade completely across the Bullecourt battlefield, grazing fire, everything above, uh, you know, hitting the attacking infantry around between the, uh, the groin and the knee. Hundreds of Australian soldiers had simply been trapped in the Hindenburg line, having been isolated by German troops who had cut off their ability to withdraw, who then rolled up their flanks with grenades. With uh, the Australian troops lacking the ammunition to defend their, their, their beleaguered positions, uh, the Germans ultimately rushed them and uh, took thousands of them prisoner. And I've just got the, uh, an account by one Australian soldier of the 13th Battalion who, who was captured in such a way... Um, he said, I was suddenly surprised to hear a gruff voice demand, come on, Australia. On looking up, I beheld several jerry bombers with bombs of the potato masher type, each pointing a revolver. I was compelled to submit the most humiliating experience of a lifetime, surrender. As the alternative meant death and I was in a helpless situation, one must naturally excuse my choice. So, um, also have uh, some other photographs uh, depicting the aftermath of the Battle of Bulukor, and they're perhaps not quite, uh, images were not quite... Um, uh, used to seeing, you know, we're used to seeing Australian troops with German prisoners or, you know, captured German weapons, but of course the Germans had images much the same, such as this one. Um, this is a group of guys from the 4th Brigade being led to the rear towards the German uh, regimental headquarters at Ecorps Saint-Quentin. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, the trophy shot of German troops posing with captured Australian weapons, uh, Lewis guns, uh, Lee Enfield rifles and Vickers machine guns. Okay. 
So um, what I wanted to do is, in, in actually looking at how the Germans treated prisons, I just wanted to give a, a very broad overview as to other factors that influence into how the, how the Bullock Corps treatment of prisoners fared. Um, Pre-war agreements were obviously uh, largely determined the, 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 how prisons were treated during the First World War. Principally, the 1907 Hague Convention and the 1906 Geneva Convention, which meant that uh, the signatories, which included France, Britain and Germany, uh, would treat prisoners of war humanely. That they, uh, they wouldn't expose them to the violence of the front line. Uh, these men were to be given uh, assistance from the, to, uh, were granted assistance from the Red Cross. Uh, that they would be treated according to rank. That officers would not be made to work. NCOs would only be made to work if it was in a supervisory capacity. And other ranks uh, could only be uh, could only uh, work legally if that that work was not associated with the captors' uh, uh, war effort. The the Geneva Convention stipulated that all captured prisoners would receive medical treatment uh, from their captors. And that largely determined uh, the treatment of Australian prisoners up until the, the, uh, the capture of these guys at Bulacor. Economic factors uh, was a big consideration. Uh, I mean, uh, the capture of uh, prisoners comes at an economic cost to those who take them. Uh, and uh, by, by August 1916, the Germans had 1.4 million Allied prisoners in its charge. Uh, now, the German wartime economy had largely been geared towards a very quick uh, war of mobility. It wasn't anticipating being bogged down on a war on multiple fronts. Uh, and in fact, the Germans had, had been struggling economically to feed their own people as a, result of, uh, as a result of financial mismanagement of their wartime resources since 1915, the infamous turnip winter of 1915. And things made, were made all the worse when uh, the Royal Navy start blockading German ports uh, preventing uh, the, the import of essential food items and food fertilisers, or fertilisers used in the agricultural sector, um, that would obviously have an impact on the ability to feed its own people. But ever more, the Germans keep on taking prisoners, so much so that by November 1918, there's 2.5 million Allied prisoners in Germany. And that comes at a cost. Uh, Germany's uh, largely unable to, to feed and clothe vast quantities of prisoners give them three square meals a day of, of good, decent food, which it's not actually been able to give to its, its own civilians. The Germans are also able to... Or the, the, the principle of reciprocity is also a, a factor which is largely determining the treatment of prisoners. And this is a, a phrase which I've, which I've, I've sort of fr coined. Um, I don't, Peter hasn't objected to it yet. Um, and what it, what it essentially means is that... Um, there were, uh, there were loopholes and omissions and oversights within the pre-war uh, pre conventions. And one of the largest oversights was the fact that uh, the policing those wartime agreements was practically impossible behind the front line. Um, I mean, uh, neutral inspectors and teams of neutral inspectors from, America, from the United States, from Switzerland... Uh, and from Spain would, would periodically go between camps in Germany and Britain to monitor and make sure that prisoners of war were, were being were treated in accord with the, the international agreements, um, that they were not allowed to go behind the lines. Uh, and so this whole principle of reciprocity is, is becomes a sort of a, uh, a way in which the belligerents themselves can manage the treatment of prisoners. If German prisoners fared similarly or fared okay in British and French hands, uh, then, you know, uh, and then British, British prisoners would be treated well in response. There's that reciprocal arrangement there. But if German prisoners were mistreated uh, behind Allied lines, the Germans would then, of course, deliberately mistreat the others in response. And so this is a way in which the belligerents can reciprocally uh, maintain the, uh, the treatment of prisoners. But I wanted to just get on to the, um, the burden of taking prisoners because this significantly affects... The, the German units who are able to capture or who captured those 1,000 Australians. Um, because, because right from the outset, uh, the, the German units involved in the fighting at Bulacor struggled to house and feed the substantial body of prisoners they had just taken. Able-bodied men were marched to the village of Ecor Saint-Quentin, probably about 10 kilometres behind the, the front line at Bulacor, um, and officers were separated uh, from the other ranks men in accord with German procedures for, for, for intelligence, because they're going to actually interrogate the officers, not necessarily the men. And that's, I think, is what's going on in this German photograph here. We have a group of Australian officers off on the right-hand side and the other men uh, just before they're shunted off to a very different uh, captivity in German hands. 800 other ranks men spent the, re the first night in captivity locked inside a church 
near the D German divisional headquarters uh, at Ecor, uh, where they were issued their first meal in German captivity. It consisted of a modest issue of bread that largely consisted of sawdust and ersatz coffee made from roasted barley and acorns. Already the Germans, uh, you know, this is, this is the German rations, but this is, this is the sort of stuff that prisoners are ultimately forced to subsist on for the duration of their captivity. Now, the following morning, the prisoners are marched to the railhead at a little place called Le Noir, where they're kept for several days in an abandoned farmhouse converted into a staging area and transit camp for the prisoners. It was overcrowded, dirty, infested with lice, although conditions were made all the more miserable when 300 Australians who had been captured at Lanyacor entered the camp and stretched their modest food rations even further. By this stage, hungry and anxious men started exhibiting signs of distress. This is a quote here. In some cases, the most miserable reward, men cringed to the Germans for a chance of being some service. Others who, despite the fact their bodies could ill afford the sacrifice, trade their boots and other clothing in exchange for food and smokes, which gives them a measure of contentment. Now, Australian troops captured at Fromel, Pozier and Mouquet Farm had, relatively, had fared relatively well in, in German hands, with some men passing through the German casualty evacuation system where they received treatment no different from German troops. That's in accord with the, with the Geneva Convention. Officers were separated from the men, both groups transported to Germany within days of their capture, entering a vast prison system that comprised 165 prison camps and, as I said, 1.4 million Allied prisoners by August 1916. Now, officers at captured at Bulacor fared considerably differently. They were sent to Germany immediately after capture and some of the wounded were treated in accord with the pre-war agreements. But Australian casualties at Bulacor had, had placed an unexpected burden on the German medical system, already struggling from bottlenecks and limited medical supplies. Now, German medical staff usually gave priority to their own wounded over the needs of prisoners of war, but there did come a point where German, uh, German troops uh, stopped taking in wounded Australian prisoners. And uh, the following is an excerpt from a fellow by the name of... Oh, that's a... a um, uh, the, the, the Hindenburg line following the Australian attack, one of the tanks which, of course, is, is put out of action. So this is uh, by a fellow by the name of Fred Peachy, and who's... Uh, there, Murray. <laughs> How are you going? Murray's... Uh, Fred Peachy's uh, descendant, Murray, is here with us. Um, and Peachy sort of describes what happened to those guys who were not taken prisoner. And I'll just leave that up there for you to read. Uh, most, most importantly, it says that fellows with um, Australian troops who had been caught in the wire suffering from leg wounds were simply put out of their misery with, uh, by revolvers. Uh, there is a, um, this little bit of evidence in Fred Peachy's uh, uh, statement, which he makes uh, following his return to Britain, uh, is, 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 launching a, is, is fostering a, uh, a fervent uh, search for what happened to those missing Australians who Fred Peachy was, uh, was busily engaged burying in shell holes. The Bullocor prisoners represented the largest loss of Australian prisoners in a single engagement and had the misfortune of being subjected to a reprisal order in response to the British and French Army's alleged misuse of German prisoners as labourers in forward areas. It was hoped that by deliberate mistreating the Bullocor prisoners, the German government would force the British to remove all, British, all German prisoners beyond 30 kilometres from the forward area. There's that principle of reprocity. Owing to the limitations to the existing pre-war agreements, the Germans were applying this principle of reprocity in an effort to improve conditions for their own men in Allied hands. However, the reprisals must also be seen within the context of Germany's declining ability to continue fighting a long war on multiple fronts without the adequate resources to do so. German reactions to reports of the British misusing prisoners in forward areas was a very convenient way for the German army to meet its logistical needs while, while managing a manpower shortage caused by heavy losses at Verdun and on the Somme. Even after the reprisals had ended, thousands of Russian, French and British prisoners remained behind German lines till the armistice in, no in November 1918. Now, the Australian prisoners who were at the, uh, the staging camp at Le Noir were eventually transported to Lille, the, the city in the north of France, where they were paraded through the streets in front of thousands of French civilians living under German occupation. Now, excessive force was used to keep the prisoners and the, and the, uh, and the, the civilians separated. William Groves described how a little girl approached the column with a packet of cigarettes, whereupon, and I quote, 
One of the file of guards rushed forward to meet her. With one jab of his rifle butt, he sent her spinning to the pavement, then bent down and confiscated the packet of cigarettes to the delight of his comrade. The prisoners were taken to a disused artillery barracks known as Fort MacDonald on, on Lille's outer suburbs. There, they were broken down into a weak physical and mental state before they were returned to the forward areas. On arrival, the column was divided into groups of 120 and locked in the underground vaults that proved too, far too small to hold the prisoners comfortably. There were no beds, blankets or straw on which the prisoners could sleep, and three small windows provided the only light and ventilation. Their rations consisted of a daily issue of bread and ersatz coffee, but this did little to satisfy the men's growing hunger. Some men coped by playing cards, singing hymns, reading pocket Bibles and keeping warm, marching around their so-called dungeon. Within time, the men started arguing over the, use of, of the issue of food. One man described how chaps began to show signs of jealousy when some of the more fortunate ones received a larger slice than the other. Hygiene was also a problem. Lice were already endemic among the men, but in each of the vaults was a small wooden barrel that served as a latrine. German sentries opened the doors once a day to feed the prisoners, but refused to empty latrines, which eventually overflowed, polluting the stale air and the floor on which the prisoners ate and slept. Grim stuff. Um, I managed to find Fort MacDonald at Lille, um, which is now a, a sort of a community hall area, and uh, managed to identify these, these vaults. And to my surprise, uh, I was found that one of these vaults, which had held Australian prisoners, has been transferred into a, um, into a, into a ballet studio. Um, you couldn't get further apart from, from what, um, from what, it, uh, had, origi- what had, had taken place there during the First World War. Now, after a week of this, uh, this treatment during what the troops referred to as the Black Hole of Lille, German commanders follow, uh, form, formally issued the following declaration explaining why the Australian prisoners had been treated so poorly. Now, I'm not going to read it all to you. I'm going to leave it up there for you to, to have a look. But in essence, it was, it was owing to a belief that the British and French armies had been uh, using and employing German prisoners within the forward area in areas raked by shellfire. As it transpired, the French had indeed used German prisoners uh, behind, the, behind the French front at Verdun, um, and uh, there was uh, some German use of prisoners further to the rear, most, uh, most notably in um, um, felling timber, uh, water supply, and also um, uh, removing um, or unloading stores and supplies from the, from the, German, from the, uh, the ports at Rouen and Le Havre, but certainly not engaged uh, immediately behind the front line where they were subjected to shellfire. Now, uh, one thing that the Germans did do, they actually requested that these, the, the prisoners, uh, after re- receiving this declaration, that they write to friends of influence, um, you know, describing how deliberately, you know, how poorly they've been treated uh, in an effort to try and dissuade the, 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 the British government uh, from, from using pris- German prisoners in forward areas. But this attempt was largely unsuccessful because, according to the Australians who endured uh, the... Uh, subjected to the mistreatment at Fort MacDonald, um, they were mindful that their names, addresses and regimental details or any information that they, they included in those letters would likely to, uh, to have assisted the Germans in the gathering of routine intelligence. Um, others uh, were mindful that news of their deliberate mistreatment would also cause unnecessary distress among the loved ones at home. So most of the Bullock Corps prisoners therefore not, did not, uh, chose not to write home during the reprisals, but the Australian High Commissioner in London received the following letter from an Australian soldier of the 14th Battalion who was later engaged at um, working at an engineering dump near, uh, near Lens in, in May 1917. He wrote, and I quote, we're in a state of exhaustion, covered in lice and other vermin. And, uh, of course, he goes on to describe that his deliberate mistreatment is a life of torture and hell. For God's sake, he pleaded, do what you can for us. Now, after 10 days at Fort MacDonald, the prisoners were expelled from their vaults and marched back to the forward area and assigned to labour camps in the Lille, Douai, Lens and Valenciennes areas. And, uh, yeah... For the next six months, these men worked 15 hours a day, digging machine gun pits, trenches and dugouts, clearing roads, unloading barges and supplies at engineering and ammunition dumps, all work that deliberately violated the Hague Convention. They were housed in derelict stables, farmhouses and ruined churches near where they worked. 
One party were housed in a shell-damaged church so close to the forward area that the concussion of falling British artillery had caused parts of the ceiling to collapse as they slept. Australians at a work detail at a village called Marquion slept in the lice-infested barn of an abandoned farmhouse next to two German heavy field howitzers that, that frequently drew fire from long-range British guns. As with all prisoners captured on the Western Front, the names and details of the Bullocourt prisoners had indeed been forwarded to the Red Cross. Um, this was confirmation that they were not missing men, that they had been taken prisoner by the Germans. And uh, this, this news reached the Australian Red Cross who were operating in London around June 1917. Now, that information uh, that, the, that the Australian Red Cross had received, uh, the German authorities had told them that they were at a camp called Limburg in Germany. Um, so, as a result, volunteers of the Australian Red Cross Prisoner of War Department subsequently dispatched thousands of, of clothing and food parcels to these guys, allegedly at Limburg, uh, so that they would be completely sufficient from... Uh, they didn't have to rely on the German provisions. But, of course, in all reality, the Bullocourt prisoners weren't within Kui of, uh, of Limburg and had to wait a further five months before they would receive a decent meal. Um, now, this would be uh, very familiar to Murray. Uh, this is, uh, I think this, interest, this is a, a really interesting um, little um, piece of uh, evidence of, from, from, you know, from the German reprisals. It's a, it's a letter that was originally addressed to Private Peachy, sent to him by the Australian Red Cross representatives in London, uh, who believed that he was at, at Limburg, under Lahn in Hessen. Uh, and, of course, he wasn't there. So what the Germans have done, they've, uh, they've been caught out in a bit of a lie. Even though they've said he's at, at Limburg, they've sent he's not in this particular army group. Uh, in fact, what, uh, what Fred Peachy had done uh, had managed to affect his escape uh, toward, in November 1917. Uh, Fred Peachy was one of just five of the Bullocor prisoners who managed to make a successful escape back to, back to British lines. Uh, and in fact, uh, some of those fellows who... Um, who escaped, they brought back news, so un uh, reliable information on how these Australian prisoners were faring in German hands. Now, the Australian official war correspondent, Charles Bean, interviews two of these escaped men and writes a lengthy dispatch, and their, their interview is then published back at home in Australia. In Australia. This news uh, reaches uh, the Australian troops fighting in France just as the 3rd and 4th Divisions are ready to go into action at the scene. And in fact, Monash, who is in charge of the Australian 3rd Division, uh, circulates these reports to the, the assaulting units of his 3rd his third Division in the hope that that would raise their indig indignation towards the Germans before they, they uh, you know, lock horns with them in combat. And Bean says that there's no recorded effect within the 3rd Division, but there certainly is amongst men of the 4th Division. Uh, there's one fellow in particular who describes not taking any prisoners in that following action at Messine as a result of the news of what was happening to his mates who'd been captured at Bullecourt. So whilst engaged behind German lines, the prisoners were kept on a so-called starvation diet of vegetable soup, ersatz coffee and whatever meat that could be procured locally. They were worked hard on modest rations as the declaration had threatened, but it must be recognised that conditions were little better than the German sentries watching over them. One Australian private was responsible for cooking for 200 British and Australian prisoners engaged in digging machine gun pits uh, behind the lines, had to make do with regular supplies of mangleversal, a few loaves of bread and a small amount of meat every few days. He said the meat ration was either 150 salted herrings and or, and I quote, a good, lo a good sized lump of horse flesh, very often a whole leg with the shoe still on which had evidently been cut, been cut from a, uh, an artillery dray killed behind the lines. It was not nice food. We had to eat it to keep our body and soul together. Well, that's, you know, understating the obvious, really, isn't it? The combination of heavy labour and a modest diet forced many prisoners to scavenge whatever they could, satisfy, whatever they could to satisfy their chronic hunger. A group of men working at uh, Marquion made scrounge bags from Hessian sacks to collect stinging nettles, dandelions, frogs and birds who had been killed through the concussion of exploding artillery. Boiled stinging nettles, according to one Bullocor prisoner, tasted much like spinach. Prisoners working near canals were able to collect freshwater mussels, eels and small fish, while those working on engineering and ammunition dumps gathered shrubs and the carcasses of, of those birds that I was mentioning before. Starving prisoners ransacked vegetable crops cultivated by German troops behind the lines and consumed those spoils quickly while sentries were not watching. 
Eating raw potatoes and turnips would obviously cause stomach complaints and bouts of diarrhoea, and in one case, claim the life of an Australian prisoner of war. Scrounging also had fatal consequences if German sentries discovered prisoners had strayed away from their work party or were caught outside their compound at night. And uh, another Australian prisoner was shot dead while ransacking a turnip crop by a German sentry who thought he was trying to escape. Now, prisoners generally respected the mounted Uhlans, the, the mounted German soldiers, and infantrymen who had seen frontline service who periodically overwatched them. But they detested the older Landsturm reservists whose age and fitness prevented from frontline service. It was these so-called Etappenschwein, these rear area pigs, who were, who were more likely to use their fists, rifle butts, and, and insult the prisoners with verbal insults and beat them to drive productivity and maintain discipline. Beatings were constant, particularly as the prisoners' physical condition deteriorated over the following weeks. On one occasion, an Australian prisoner who had collapsed through sheer exhaustion was struck over the head with a shovel. Another Australian prisoner was found to, with, a, with a crudely fashioned shiv, and was given several hours field punishment that the Germans referred to as bin and binden. With hands bound behind his back and feet barely touching the ground, he was hanged from his neck and choked for several hours. The cumulative effects of a poor diet and an un unsanitary living conditions led to outbreaks of disease, which included dysentery, enteritis, pneumonia and malaria. Malnourished, uh, these affected the prisoners more so than the actual physical abuse. Men deficient in nutrients suffered terribly from beriberi, which is a condition more commonly associated with Australian prisoners of the Japanese. Prisoners had the right to attend sick parades at roll call every morning, but sentries were just as likely to force them to work regardless of their condition and then beat them when they collapsed. One man already suffering from dysentery deteriorated into such a full physical state that he had to be carried to the latrines. He was unable to work, so the, 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 century, uh, the German sentry who was overwatching them beat him repeatedly in the head with rifle butts and then uh, he was obviously refused medical treatment. Um, he was eventually allowed to see a doctor but he had died five minutes before an ambulance arrived to take him to go see a doctor. Sick men in, in other work parties were allowed to medical attention but in many cases they were spent several days in hospitals at, at Mons or Valenciennes and returned to the forward area until their health broke down completely. Disease was endemic in most work parties. Within a two-month period, half of the 200 Australians at the Marquion ammunition dump had been hospitalised, suffering from disease. Now, artillery posed less of a threat to the prisoners of war who were working behind German lines, mainly because the likelihood of British shells falling on work parties varied between their proximity to the fighting and the operational activity within that particular sector. Most labour companies were, were situated up to 10 kilometres behind the front line, which put them out of range of, of the ordinary field artillery batteries. But heavy siege guns would strike deep into German-occupied territory, carrying out counter-battery work, harassing and interdiction, and bombarding ammunition and supply dumps, stores, roads and railway depots, which were precisely the places where British and French prisoners were working during the reprisals. The area most vulnerable to British artillery during this period was the German-occupied villages along the Scarp River, um, which was just quite opposite to where the British and Canadians had made significant gains from the Battle of Arras. Now, this included the village of Corbehem, where a party of 150 Australians were digging saps and burying German bodies and carrying out general fatigue work. On the 1st of May 1917, the Royal Garrison Artillery fired on a German ammunition dump where Australian prisoners were busily engaged unloading shells from a German supply train. A 15-inch shell caused the dump to explode, killing seven Australian prisoners and wounding five. The British shell fire also destroyed a nearby supply depot and factory where machine guns and a store of a small arms fire were stored. Many of the prisoners reported that they were made to keep working while the shells fell all around them, while the German sentries, of course, were taking shelter nearby, rifles trained on the prisoners. Okay, um, this is that rail siding at Corbehem, and it doesn't really look like much, uh, but uh, of course, you know, this is perhaps one of the, the most violent sort of instances that occurs behind the German lines. Uh, seven Australians are killed just as a, as a random shell lands as they're unloading uh, loading shells. Uh, I actually think it's just off to the right-hand side where the railway line is, and of course, there's those blokes today. Um, because this is some kilometres away from the, uh, from, you know, Bullocore battlefield itself, um, British Commonwealth War Graves Cemetery is a, you know, a 
very few and far between in this neck of the woods. So uh, these, um, these, these graves are actually held in the Corbeham Communal Cemetery. Um, yeah, where I'm very surprised if uh, they actually receive many visitors throughout the year. Now, the incident at Corbeham highlighted the vulnerability of Allied prisoners working in forward areas, but the artillery threat was significantly less than the health problems associated with the poor diet and months of general debility. The War Office sent reassurances to the German government in May 1917 that prisoner labour companies had indeed been removed 30 kilometres beyond the British forward area. And in June, most British and French prisoners operating behind German lines were moved to work parties further to the German rear. These new labour camps were no longer within range of British siege guns, but the paltry conditions, physical abuse and squalid living conditions remained much the same for months to come. Nevertheless, this move brought an end, formal end, to the German reprisals against the Bullocor prisoners, many of whom had gone months without a decent meal. Their overall debility eventually necessitated their move to Germany in October 1917, by which time 87 of them had died of disease and seven killed by British shellfire. One Australian prisoner in Germany was appalled by the emaciated state of some of the Bullocor prisoners who arrived in camp in November 1917. He shared his Red Cross food parcel with the men of the 4th Brigade on the brink of exhaustion. He said he made a rush at the tin of bully beef and grabbed it. After he finished, he sat, simply sat down and cried like a kid. So um, I wanted to show a photograph of a British soldier who had spent six months working behind German lines throughout 1918. Now, this is an image that we readily associate with the Second World War. We all, all, all know those images of Australians uh, who had worked along the Burmatai Railway, but uh, conditions in some respects were much the same. Okay? Uh, but even though, well, at the start of my presentation, I, was, I mentioned that very few Australian prisoners had died in German captivity, it does in some way belie the fact that these guys were treated terribly. So what happened to the, the prisoners, the Bullocor prisoners, once they arrived in Germany? Well, they fared a lot better once they were in contact with the Red Cross. And I think those, the contrast between those two images is quite stark. Once the men had entered a camp and started receiving Red Cross food parcels, uh, they were nursed back to a, to a, to a, uh, a fit state. Now, the, uh, the other ranks men, because they could legally be employed as labourers on the German home front... Uh, they were. They spent very minimal amount of time in the camps themselves. Yep, I'm coming to an end now. Um, and um, many of them actually went out to what they referred to as Arbeitskommandos, uh, or work parties, out in the German countryside. Uh, they, where they still received their Red Cross food parcels. They were in contact with home. They had prisoner of war uniforms. Um, and in some respects, many of these guys uh, were, were sent to work parties engaged in work that they had pretty much done uh, in civilian life. Um, the Germans around them fared quite poorly um, to the point where some prisoners were able to exchange the contents of their food parcels for things like escape equipment, clothing, firewood, and in some cases, they procured sex. I mean, this challenges the whole notion of what we think of captivity in the First World War to be like. Uh, so much so that British prisoners of war in contact with the Red Cross were among the best-fed people in the country. So when the war ends, um, these guys return home. Uh, the Australians had suffered terribly during the First World War. There's 60,000 war dead. And in many respects, by, by which stage, by the time the, the Bullock Corps prisoners returned home to Australia, they had new AIF uniforms. Uh, they, had, they looked physically fit. Um, they simply were demobilised, went back to Australia, discharged from the AIF and got on with the rest of their lives. So their story had indeed been neglected and had, had been neglected for the, for the next 100 years. But so I, I hope that this presentation has, has, has sort of given you an insight into the experiences of some of those guys who were captured at Bullocor and indeed Australian prisoners captured on the Western Front. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, thanks for telling us a, a novel but a grim story. We've got time for a few minutes' worth of questions. Anyone who's got a question? Roger Lee, look at that. He's <laughs> quick on the draw. And then the gentleman in the front here. Aaron, 
Absolutely. This, this, uh, when news of the German mistreatment of prisoners, when those escaped prisoners came back and, and told Bean all about the, their harrowing ordeal, this fed right into the British propaganda machine. I mean, the British public had sort of been told that, you know, Germans had violated Belgian neutrality, they'd crucified Canadian prisoners, the barn doors at Ypres, you know, they'd sunk, you know, they engaged, uh, you know, uh, unrestricted submarine warfare, sinking allied troops, or um, civilian uh, passenger liners, um, chemical gas, you know, you name it. Look at the barbaric hunt, look what he's doing now. And, and certainly in some of the recruiting, also recruiting pamphlets of, of, uh, from 1917, 1918, uh, this sort of material as to what happened to the prisoners is featuring in those pamphlets. Uh, thanks. And the gentleman at the front, you, you'll have to speak up very loudly. Uh, well, not well. There is a list, and it's unpublished because it's on my laptop. Um, so, um, what one thing I've been able to do is catalogue all 3,848 Australians uh, captured on the Western Front and who were in contact with the Red Cross, and verified uh, that they were, and indeed um, done extensive research on their unit, date, place of capture, and then we sorted chronologically. We have a chronological list of who was captured where on what date. And uh, I have a list of all those guys who were captured at Bulukor. So perhaps, if you have someone in mind, perhaps we should talk later. <laughs> Rob? Well, uh, Aaron, thanks for that. Um, was it only the Bulukor prisoners in particular that were mistreated, or were they sort of singled out as a particular group, or was there wider punishment of other British POWs taken to places yeah. like Yeah, there's, the, the reprisals affected much broader population of British prisoners who were captured at Arras, but the Bulacor guys represent the largest number of them. Um, Australians who were captured at Noriel, which I think there's probably about 90 of them, and there's about 300 Australians captured at Lanyacor, uh, but, of, but of course the Bulacor blokes, you know, they, they sort of constitute the, the majority of them. Yeah. Just while you're thinking of another question, can I ask people who have a connection to Bulacor through a member of their family, like uh, Murray over here, to put your hands up? Well, I haven't, so I'll keep my down. Oh, that's about, what, 10% of the audience? Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. We've got uh, easily seven minutes for questions, so anything at the back there? Yeah. Um, yes, Catherine. That's a really good question, and, uh, and even the... Did the people at the back here? Yes, yep. good. That, that's a really good question. I mean, um, uh, it, it does happen. I mean, uh, the Germans, some Germans are, you know, pilfering those Red Cross food parcels, condensed milk, chocolate, cigarettes, all this sort of stuff to line their own pockets. Um, but um, there is, uh, even from the Danish ports all the way down through to the prison camps, each of these, these sort of cons these consignments of Red Cross parcels are being uh, watched over by armed guards, I guess, because what's that doing? That you know, if the Germans were intercepting those parcels uh, on, a, on a much broader scale, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's going to affect the treatment of German prisoners in British hands. Um, what's interesting is that uh, not all prisoners in Germany actually receive parcels. Uh, I think it's the Italians and Russians, uh, the Russian governments flat out refuse to send their own men parcels uh, because, you know, it may materially assist Germany, but it also may serve as an incentive for their own men to throw down their rifles and stick up their hands and go toddling off to the enemy. Uh, one behind the pillar, yes. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, well, uh, if we have a look at the Australian Red Cross, um, I mean, their, their, their supplies and resources are limited, um, but they do... Elizabeth Chomley, who's the president or who's the secretary of the Australian Prisoner of War Department, handwrites letters to each and every one of those 3,848 Australians captured on the Western Front. And then some of those, those photographs that I've used in my, in my presentation are photographs that were sent to her, which are then donated to the Australian War Memorial. But the international agreements actually do recognise the psychological casualties of men who had, who had uh, you know, suffered long-term effects of confinement during the First World War. Uh, in fact, the Brit British and the, uh, the Germans uh, have come to a bilateral understanding that men who had spent more than 18 months behind barbed wire could be interned 
in neutral Holland, uh, while the wounded uh, and men who are unlikely to return to active service could, would be interned in Switzerland. But it came on a first-come, first-served basis. Uh, and in fact, uh, and so Australians, you know, they, they were first captured in 1916, um, you know, fared, you know, fared fairly low on the, on the priority list. But certainly there's about 200 Australians who were interned in, in, uh, the, in, in neutral Holland uh, to mitigate a, a condition which during the First World War was known as barbed wire disease. Yeah, so they, those, those psychological factors were taken into consideration. Uh, after they returned to Australia, no. Um, I mean, there was, there, was a, um, there was a... After their repatriation to, to Britain, um, in the Second World War, uh, prisoners coming back from Germany were psychologically screened and built up to a, to a, 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 you know, a, a fit physical and ment mental health. There was no such consideration to these guys who came back from Germany. The main priority was the, uh, you know, the guys who were already in, in hospital in England and, of course, the AIF deployed overseas. These, these blokes who had, who had spent, their, spent the rest of their war behind German barbed wire had, in effect, survived captivity in the war. And as far as the AIF was concerned, there was no further need to, to treat them as such. No, well, yeah. Once once Australian prisoners got back to Germany, uh, got back to Australia, they were just they were no different from any other Australian soldier returning home, and so some of them did take up soldier settlement schemes. Some of them requested financial assistance from the repatriation department. Uh, others uh, had saved up their massive amounts of deferred pay whilst they were in captivity and spent it on re-education after the war. Uh, there is actually some suggestion that work in Germany, such as on farms, may have actually prepared some Australian prisoners for life after the war. Mm. Andrew, yours is the last. Not, not to the extent that there was during the Second World War. However, there were uh, war crimes trials, uh, the, the Leipzig war crimes trials done throughout the 1920s. Uh, and uh, of the, the 20 or so charges that were brought against Germany, uh, I think there was a number of individuals, less than 10, who had individually mistreated prisoners of war. Um, it, it certainly wasn't to the extent to which uh, the Second World War uh, is what you're thinking of in regards to the Second World War. But I, I think the, the idea of the principle of reciprocity uh, you know, the British weren't, uh, the French weren't clean skins at all. They had mistreated German prisoners. Uh, you know, German prisoners had indeed not, had fared not particularly well in forward areas in the British frontline areas as well. Um, yeah, but uh, an interesting, an interesting, yeah, an interesting question to pose. Mm. And thank you for posing it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you to put your hands together to thank Aaron for his excellent presentation.